This is episode two of the audio version of Frontline's Amazon Empire, The Rise and Reign of Jeff Bezos. I want to talk a little bit about how we think about innovation at Amazon.com. Amazon would begin to accumulate even more power in 2005, when Bezos quietly rolled out a revolutionary new program, Amazon Prime. Now they have something called the Prime Shipping Program, where for roughly Amazon Prime, uh, we only launched this a week ago. You pay $79 a year, and you get two-day shipping for free. It was a risky bet, and it paid off. NYU professor Scott Galloway. The linchpin or the glue, if you will, and probably the seminal moment in Amazon's business history was the introduction of what has become the most successful membership program in history, and that's Prime. Many of you in this audience will already be Amazon Prime members. Bless you. This is very much appreciated. Eventually, more than 150 million people would sign up for the free shipping. A tremendous expense for Amazon. But to Bezos, it was worth it. Former senior manager James Thompson. The Prime program at Amazon is one of the most important drivers of Amazon's growth. When you go on and you look to buy a product and it's available in two days, delivered to your door anywhere in the country, that Amazon Prime program becomes a mechanism that keeps bringing you back as a customer to keep buying and keep searching for new products on Amazon. Two-day delivery anywhere in the country was a big promise for a company that, at the time, had less than 10 warehouses. So Bezos went on a building spree. Across the country, Amazon warehouses began to spring up, filled with millions of products being sold on Bezos's platform. He'd call them fulfillment centers, and they'd create hundreds of thousands of jobs in places hard hit by the Great Recession. 10% of Pennsylvania residents unemployed. The job market is in complete disarray. Like Allentown, Pennsylvania. At that time, it was tremendous news that an employer was coming and actually opening a facility and hiring people versus, you know, gutting half the staff. Spencer Soper was a business reporter for the Allentown Morning Call when Amazon opened in the area in 2010. He began hearing stories about working in the warehouse. People are basically in this big sprawling warehouse that's stocked with goods in very random fashion. And they have uh, scanners that tell them which things to get. And people are walking maybe 10, 15 miles a day. And people are just kind of crisscrossing this big warehouse all day long. As workers told him about the punishing pace to meet the daily quota of packages and the intense heat Soper and his colleagues started to investigate further. People really felt like Amazon was playing fast and loose with their, with their health. Soper discovered there had been numerous complaints to authorities at the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA. They actually had a complaint from an emergency room doctor who called their hotline one day saying, listen, you might want to check out this Amazon place. I've had like people parading through my uh, emergency room to be treated for heat stress. There was a security guard who worked in the facility who sent a complaint to OSHA saying that he saw pregnant women suffering uh, heat stress in, in the facility. And so there's just like these red flags uh, right, right and left. After an investigation, OSHA said Amazon needed to keep the temperatures in the warehouses lower. In a statement at the time, the company said it installed new industrial air conditioning 
and pledged that worker safety was its number one priority. Amazon is shrewd business people. Shrewd business people know when they have leverage. And when you're the only shop hiring people in town, you can push them a lot harder than you can when, when they've got alternatives. Over the following years, Amazon would hire hundreds of thousands of workers and become one of the largest jobs creators in the country. At the fulfillment centers, Bezos experimented with new techniques and technologies to boost productivity. Willingness to experiment is a key to being able to do new things. So we do, you know, hundreds of experiments every day in our fulfillment centers to get a little bit better, kind of like incremental invention. When a company called Kiva perfected a warehouse robot, Amazon bought the whole company. Amazon has acquired Kiva Systems. Uh, they make shipping robots. It helped transform the work environment in Amazon's warehouses. When I first showed up at Amazon in 1999, I led our global operations team. Jeff Wilkie created the Amazon Fulfillment Center System and is one of two CEOs under Jeff Bezos. As we've added 200,000 robots in that same time frame since 2012, we've added 300,000 people in our fulfillment centers. So what happens is the robots change the work, so they allow us, people don't have to walk as far, which is a complaint that we've heard in the past. They make the job safer. They make them higher quality because we present a smaller set of options to, customer, to, uh, to employees. And that's all good for customers, and it's good for employees too. But at the same time, complaints have persisted. People who've worked in warehouses for decades say this is different. This is not the same. We're here today because we want to make sure that these workers know about their rights in the workplace, especially around heat. Shahari Arkazji is an advocate for warehouse workers in the San Bernardino, California area, an Amazon hub with 10 fulfillment centers and over 15,000 employees. Because of the way that Amazon operates, because of the way that they set their rates for productivity, it's a lot harder work physically, but also psychologically. We sat down with a group in San Bernardino who'd recently worked at Amazon. When they first got here, I thought it was exciting. Like for me, I was thinking maybe I could find a, a place where, you know, I'm gonna set roots of, of a good job, you know, move up in, in place. But after being there for a while, I was like, there's no way. It's like, okay, this is where I could probably make a career, but once you work there for a certain amount of time, it's just like, it's just not realistic how they expect you to work. Like dozens of workers we've spoken to around the country, they say they've struggled to keep up with the rate Amazon expected them to pick and pack items. How realistic are the rates that they're giving you? I mean, what's realistic at all? Unrealistic. Not, not realistic? No. There's n absolutely no way to make rate. You know, you got to find little ways to, to cheat it. Because once you hit rate, by the end of the week, they raise it, they bump it up again. Because they start Every saying, you, hey, people could, could hit those rates, could hit those numbers. Hey, let's push them a little harder. Every week, it seemed like it was going up. You have security cameras right behind you at all times uh, that are looking at you uh, 24 seven. And if you don't meet standards or the rates, you're out the door, you're just disposable. Every worker has a scanner at all times that basically track exactly where you're at. And they have a little blue line at the bottom of the screen, and it has, like, how many seconds 
that you have to have it done by the time it hits zero. And it puts you into panic mode. And pretty much you can't talk to people. You can't be in the same aisle as them. You just constantly have to sit there scanning like a robot all day long. If they catch you not scanning, you get a write-up. And what they're doing is they're producing this massive data that they are using to be able to analyze the entire workforce. We're not treated as human beings. We're not even treated as robots. We're treated as part of the data stream. Correspondent James Jacoby with Shahari Arkowski. It's the incentive at any warehouse on any assembly line to get the most out of any worker, yes. you know, to make rates to, to be as efficient as possible, to be as productive as possible. So I don't see exactly what's different about Amazon as opposed to any other warehouse. Amazon is the cutting edge. Other warehouses are starting to adopt these technologies. Other companies are definitely interested in doing what Amazon is doing. Data collection could become basically the standard for all workers, and that there's ne you're never good enough. You're never able to keep up. Amazon told us work rates are not based on an individual employee's performance, and that the scanning devices workers use are not for tracking people, but inventory a common practice in the warehouse industry. James Jacoby. We've talked to workers around the country, both current and former workers. They've described the pace of work as being really grueling. In the early thinking about rates and how far you could push human beings in terms of their productivity, what was the thinking about that? Amazon Global Consumer CEO Jeff Wilkie. Well, obviously, if the rates are too high, you're not going to have people showing up for work. So we have 600,000 people at the company. Most of them are in the fulfillment centers. And uh, they, they uh, come to work every day. They stay for years. These are considered great jobs in the hundreds of communities where we have fulfillment centers all over the world. And in the US, we have almost every state has an operation in it. And people come to work because these are great jobs. They're safe. We pay double the minimum wage, the national minimum wage. We have terrific benefits. The benefits for the folks that work on the floor are the same benefits that my family has access to. Our family leave is like 20 weeks. So uh, the rates are set so that we can accomplish what we need to, which is get orders to customers in a, a reasonable time and in a high quality way. And that creates a workplace that people want to come back to, and they do. Amazon wouldn't tell us how long fulfillment center workers stay on the job or how often they're injured. But workers we spoke to say the rates are higher than other warehouses and that the company rebuffs attempts to unionize. We do not believe unions are in the best interest of our customers, our shareholders, or most importantly, our associates. This is a clip from a video the company says it used in the past to teach managers about employees' rights and labor laws. The most obvious signs would include use of words associated with unions or union-led movements like living wage or steward. Early on, Amazon took a position to, to basically be anti-union. Why was that decision made? Uh, I don't think we made the decision to be anti-union. We just feel that all of the things that, that unions would, uh, would want to, uh, to get us to do, we've already done. What, what about setting rate, though? Do you not see that there's a little bit more leverage in the hands of management in this scenario than there would be in a unionized environment? I don't know. It's hard to speculate on that. But, but I do think that we have the obligation to set rates that are, again, going to encourage people to seek these jobs and deliver 
for customers, you know, what we've promised. What would you say to someone, though, who's who's worked in, in your fulfillment centers that feels as though there's been that that humans are increasingly being treated like robots? Because it's something that we've actually heard and I don't sense it's hyperbole. Well, th that's not the experience that uh, that I had in setting it up or that I've seen. It's pro it's certainly true that that these jobs are not for everybody. And there, there may be people that don't want to do this kind of work. Amazon executives also stress the company has become an industry leader in training its workforce for career advancement. We just announced a pledge uh, recently to spend $700 million to upskill, which is basically creating career opportunities for people, 100,000 of our employees. We pay 95% of tuition to go to school to college to get a skill that isn't about Amazon, that's about creating options for the employees. And I would expect those people to take advantage of that, work for us for a couple of years, and then go do something that they would much rather do, and that's okay. James Jacoby, back with the group of former Amazon workers. There'll be people that will hear what you all are saying, and they'll say, well, you signed up for physical labor. A job is a job, there were benefits, and they're now investing $700 million to do retraining for other types of jobs. What's the real grievance? What is there to complain about? I actually used to think that way for a while. Whenever I, when I first started, whoever I heard complaints from, I was like, well, it was in the job description and, and you signed up for it. Uh, the part they don't talk about is the safety rules that you have to ignore to make rate. It's not just you go in Okay, and you, you do your job, and that's it. So you're in you're in a weird bind. It's incredibly hard to meet rate while following all the safety procedures. A complaint that we've heard from workers in terms of the sort of automation of their work as humans. Some of them telling us that yes, there are high safety standards in these fulfillment centers, but that in order to make rate, they're having to cheat the standard a little bit. Well, I would say that's not okay. Jeff Wilkie. So I, from the moment that uh, I arrived 20 years ago, I made it very clear to our operations teams that we will not compromise the safety of our employees to do anything else. So we have, we have a culture that if, if we are asking people to do something that, is, that, that they have to do too fast to be safe, they can raise their hand and say this isn't right and, and we'll fix it. For years, Amazon has put a happy face on its business and its workforce. Give a little bit. Give a little bit. Reporter Spencer Soper. Even in Amazon's commercials, the people are almost like shadows and silhouettes. It's all about boxes. And there's just like happy boxes singing and bumbling their way to your door, like, oh, no, no. There's so much that we Hello. They don't want you to even think about how they do this. They just want you to be wowed and, oh, how'd this, how'd this get here? I'll give a little bit of my love to you. They wanted people to just think, whoa, magic. And magic was a big part of Bezos's marketing strategy, with an emphasis on the company's miraculous level of innovation and growth. We started Amazon Prime in 2005, but then something very extraordinary happened. This. In 2011, the slope of that graph changed a lot. As Amazon grew, 
He wanted his top executives to think about the kind of company it was becoming. He wrote a memo titled, Amazon.love. A copy of it was obtained by Brad Stone. The memo is another example of Jeff being very prescient about the future. It's Jeff grappling with the idea that not all big companies are loved, that there is something that we get uncomfortable with when we talk about very big companies. Rudeness is not cool. Defeating tiny guys is not cool. Risk-taking is cool. Winning is cool. Polite is cool. Defeating bigger, unsympathetic guys is cool. Inventing is cool. Explorers are cool. Conquerors are not cool. Jeff Bezos. Some businesses, you can tell when you go in and have meetings with them, they have a conqueror mentality. And there's a big difference between being a conqueror and being an explorer. And I think in you know, this very inventive space that we're in, um, it pays to explore. But to some watching Amazon's growth, the company was falling short of that ideal and taking steps to make sure nothing got in its way. In 2013, Amazon was moving to create its own delivery system and made a key decision. Rather than hire its own drivers, it built a network of independent businesses to deliver packages. They weren't just gonna dabble here and dabble there. They were gonna go and create a system that would rival FedEx or UPS. ProPublica reporter Patricia Callahan, in conjunction with BuzzFeed, has investigated the system Amazon set up. They figured out a way to get around regulation. The cargo vans they choose are big enough to stuff with hundreds of Amazon packages, but they're small enough that they're not regulated by the federal government. An 84-year-old woman struck and killed by an Amazon delivery truck. A woman hit and killed in a parking lot. ProPublica and BuzzFeed found that drivers are under intense pressure to deliver packages. After striking him, the van maneuvered around Salinas and his dog. And they documented more than 60 crashes, including 13 deaths since 2015. An infant critically injured in a car crash has died. When it came time to figure out who's responsible, Amazon would always say, it's a contractor, it's not our responsibility. Now, you've been able to find 13 deaths, and that's over the course of several years. Is that statistically significant, given all of the packages that they deliver in any day or any given year? I don't pretend to claim that there's only 13 deaths and that I found every single one. I just found enough to show that this is happening around the country. With UPS, there's a record. There's a federal record you can look at how many serious injury and fatal accidents they have. With Amazon, that doesn't exist. No one knows the safety records of all of Amazon's contractors. Amazon disputed the ProPublica report. It would not release any data on crashes involving its driver network, but told us it had a better than average safety record, and that nothing is more important to them than safety. Amazon CEO Jeff Wilkie. Any accident is one accident too many. So just as we're focused on safety in the fulfillment centers and product safety, we, are, we set very high standards with all of those partners for safe performance. Um, we have training videos for the third parties that work with us. 
uh, to help them understand what we expect uh, in terms of the drive. We have um, you know, mapping software that we use to help them find the right routes. Every one of our drivers is required, including the third parties, are required to have uh, comprehensive insurance, including liability insurance, so that if there is an accident, that the, uh, the person who's injured is covered. Amazon wants to get Prime members or packages even faster. Right In the last year, Amazon announced a change to the way it handles Prime deliveries. Instead of delivering packages in two days, they promised to do it in one. Free next day delivery all across the U.S. It's impossible for me to imagine a world 20 years from now where a customer comes up to me and says, Jeff, I love Amazon, I just wish your prices were a little higher. Or, I love Amazon, I just wish you delivered a little more slowly. At the same time the delivery network was being set up, Amazon was also rapidly expanding its product offerings, inviting more sellers onto the site, including those from China. It basically makes it to where it's super easy for these companies who are maybe not as careful with adhering to the law, where they're able to just start a business up on Amazon, import some stuff, sell it, cause some problems, and then disappear. Rachel Greer worked in product safety at Amazon and worried that the site was being flooded with untested and potentially unsafe products. Are there proper warnings? Has it been safety tested for durability? If a child chews on it, will the paint come off? Is that paint leaded? Most people would assume that there is a pretty high safety standard on Amazon. And that assumption would be incorrect. She says that's because Amazon, like other tech companies, takes the position that it's not legally responsible if its customers are harmed by products sold by third parties on the site. If someone buys something that causes harm at Walmart or at Target, a consumer can sue Walmart or Target. Right, because no one's forcing you when you come into Walmart to enter the doors of Walmart. They aren't making you sign away your rights. But when do you sign that when you go on Amazon.com? When you make your account. You accept the terms and conditions. People have been challenging Amazon's terms and conditions in court. Some have even been successful. Correspondent James Jacoby. Ultimately, who's on the hook when a customer buys a dangerous product on Amazon? Who takes ultimate responsibility for that? Well, in the rare case where, that, where something like that happens, if it's a third-party seller, the sale is by a, a third-party seller. And it is the seller's responsibility to... Uh, to sell a legitimate product to a customer. And then when Amazon is the retailer and we sell a product to, the, to a customer, then it's our obligation to make sure that we understand the manufacturer and the supply chain for that product and its, and its safety. But when the other sellers are selling in your store, you're not responsible for it ultimately if they're selling your customer a defective or dangerous product? I think the way things work in the U.S. is that uh, the seller of record is the person who is setting the price and who is purchasing the product. And for things not sold by Amazon, and it says on the detail page, it'll tell you who the seller is. Uh, it's the seller's responsibility for those things. And for us, uh, it's, um, it, it's very clear. It says Amazon.com whenever we sell. Do you audit your sellers in terms of whether they're actually providing safe products to your customers? 
we do, we, you know, some of our sales, so about uh, almost 60% of our sales are by third parties. And uh, those sales, some of them come from, directly from the third parties. So we're not involved at all. But you take a cut. I mean, it's, it's on your infrastructure. It goes through Amazon.com. So, I mean, Well, it's on our infrastructure not- in terms of the website and payments. But we're and, not we're, and fees that you know you're taking a cut of the sale, sure, right? Sure, uh, and we're providing you know traffic that that you know it's kind of the way they think about marketing is why they would pay that fee. But um, uh, it's harder to before an experience inspect that that product. South Carolina woman who bought a hair dryer on Amazon said this happened. Fire is coming out of the hair dryer. Amazon's approach has had consequences. A hoverboard caused a fire that destroyed their home. Dangerous products were flagged by authorities in Washington state. Found dozens of school supplies that had high levels of toxic metals. And a recent report found thousands of banned, unsafe, or mislabeled products. James Jacoby with former product safety manager, Rachel Greer. I'm having a hard time understanding something, which is that, that you know, Amazon's entire brand is about the customer. Yes. Right? That it's... I reminded them of this over and over again. You reminded them of what? It said that no customer wants to buy an unsafe product. No customer wants selection that harms their child. No customer wants to buy something that burns down their house because it looks cool and it's the latest, coolest thing. Sitting here today, are you able to basically say that the products that you sell on Amazon.com are safe? CEO Jeff Wilkie. What I can say is we work really hard to make sure that they're safe. We have, uh, we've spent $400 million in the last year on systems that seek out things that are not uh, safe. And, you know, there are millions of sellers and hundreds of millions of products. And our job is to, as fast as we can, weed out the ones that don't belong on our site. We're going to have to be vigilant as a retailer and as a technology company, and um, and we are definitely dedicated to uh, to protecting the safety of our customers. We heard that concern for the customer over and over in our interviews with Amazon executives. Customer trust in a company like Amazon it's sort of foundational. Customer obsession is the first leadership principle, and it it's not a corporate slogan. We try to stay really focused on customers. Very focused on um, delivering results for our customers. Providing a great customer experience that customers want. Delivering that, that, that customer delight. This commitment to the customer and to keeping prices low had another benefit. It helped them avoid running afoul of regulators who enforce the nation's antitrust laws. Barry Lynn, director of Open Markets Institute. It's uh, important to understand sort of that there's t- two fundamental philosophies of antitrust, of anti-monopoly law. You know, there's the traditional philosophy in which you, you want to break up all potential concentrations of power that you can, but for the last 30 years, uh, there's been this change in how we do antitrust. And this is the idea that the only purpose of antitrust should be to drive prices lower to serve the interest of the consumer. Lynn had been urging regulators to take a more traditional approach and examine whether the company was gaining market power in exploitative ways, stifling fair competition, but keeping prices low for consumers. We live in a society of consumers, though, and seemingly there is some net benefit to all of us when prices are low. 
So what's wrong with that view of things? It's obviously good for people to, for all people, if we can drive down prices, if we have lower priced drugs, if we have books that anybody could buy, uh, that's a good thing. It's a good thing for society. And it's a good thing for us as consumers. Uh, but uh, we're not only consumers, we're also citizens. We're also producers. We're also people who think and who make things and who grow things. And we want to have access to open markets. Once again, the tension was most pronounced with book publishers. Amazon was selling around 40% of all new books in America and two-thirds of all electronic books, thanks to the success of the Kindle. Then one of the world's largest publishers, Hachette, decided to push back. Franklin Foer was one of its authors. Hachette and Amazon set out to renegotiate their ebook contract. And Hachette said, no, we don't accept the terms of your contract. And Amazon basically said, to hell with you, Hachette. We're going to stop delivering your books. If somebody searches for a Hachette title, we're going to redirect them to another publisher. Amazon's battle with Hachette and the authors that Hachette publishes is heating up. As Bezos's virtual blockade dragged on for months, a bitter seven-month standoff, thousands of authors including bestsellers like Douglas Preston, were caught in the middle. Some authors were losing 50 to 90% of their sales from Amazon. It was absolutely devastating to first-time authors. It actually destroyed their careers. Did you see your sales plummet? I did. Yes, I saw my sales plummet uh, tremendously. In frustration, Preston penned an open letter on behalf of all authors. It was published in the New York Times with more than 900 signatures. We authors have loved Amazon. We have enthusiastically supported it. And this is how they treat us? This is not right. Amazon has been accused of doing everything from raising prices to deliberately delaying shipment. Is this what happens when Jeff Bezos decides to flex his muscles? While Hachette and Amazon were at an impasse, Douglas Preston, Franklin Foer, and other authors went to Washington and asked the Obama administration to open an investigation. Franklin Foer. I went to the Justice Department and I went to the Federal Trade Commission with the Authors Guild and we tried to explain to them why this power was so dangerous. We pointed out all the ways in which Amazon was bullying the publishing industry. Douglas Preston. The Department of Justice listened to us and their answer was essentially this. Amazon is one of the most popular companies in the country. They have brought tremendous services to consumers and they've brought lower prices. And that we hadn't given them any kind of reason to open an antitrust investigation. Eventually, Hachette and Amazon would settle their dispute, with Amazon allowing Hachette to set its own prices for eBooks, but offering it incentives to keep them low. 